The text we're going to be looking at uh, this evening is uh, from Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. Uh, this is on page 885 on the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there, or you can just go ahead and listen, uh, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, this passage comes after the crucifixion of Jesus and the finding of the empty tomb. So Jesus has been put to death in Luke's gospel by the Jewish and Roman leaders. He's been buried. And for Jesus' followers at this point in the gospel, all hope seems to be lost. And then on the third day, a group of women from Jesus' followers go to the tomb and they find it empty. And in his place, they find two angels standing there who tell them that Jesus is risen. And the women run back to the other disciples and tell them. But it says in, in the gospel that to the disciples, it seemed to be just an idle tale. And they doubt it. Peter goes on and runs to the tomb to see for himself. And he finds the burial linens there, but nothing else. And it says he walked back from the tomb, marveling at what had happened. So that's where our story, our text that we're looking at tonight, picks up. On the day of the resurrection, on the day of the first Easter, on the day where up to this point, things have been marked by confusion for all and doubt for many. So with that said, we'll take a look at Luke 24. Verses 13 to 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray together. Christ, we pray that you would be with us now. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word for your glory and for our good. We pray this in your name, Christ. Amen. 
Uh, as we come together tonight, now, uh, two weeks after Easter, two weeks after we celebrated one of the central claims of our faith, we're looking at Luke's second story in his account of the resurrection tonight. And we're going to spend a little time considering the topic of doubt. Doubt's an issue that we all deal with that Luke's first readers struggled with, that the two disciples in our text on the road to Emmaus struggled with, that is a universal struggle for us. Doubts often begin for us when the Christian faith butts up against what, quote-unquote, everybody knows. This is when Christianity butts up against the beliefs that seem obvious to our particular culture in our particular time and place. It's in these points of contradiction between Christianity and the again, quote-unquote, obvious beliefs of one's cultures that makes Christianity difficult in those moments for us to believe. It makes it seem like Christianity is maybe not so likely to be true. It makes it seem like pieces of it are implausible. For convenience, I'm going to call these, these areas, these topics, these places where we struggle, implausibility points. So these, these points within what we believe, where there's a, a tension with the culture, where there's a tension that we feel ourselves and that if we're honest, seem to make us feel like Christianity is less plausible than we'd like to think. So what are some of those for us? Well, I think around us in our uh, time and setting, there are a number that we find. Because everybody knows around us that a loving God would never send anyone to hell. Everybody knows that the universe really is just a material place. It's shaped and ruled by time and chance. Everybody knows that a loving God would never restrict what we're allowed to do with our own bodies. Everybody knows that all views of God are equal and that it's arrogant to say that you're right about God and that someone else is wrong. These are the things around us that everybody knows, the tensions that we feel. Now, of course, one of the first things that's helpful to acknowledge as we start to think about these things is how these implausibility points are, tend to vary widely from culture to culture. A non-Christian in a more traditional culture than ours would likely have little problem with the doctrine of hell or with the sexual ethics of Christianity. But the idea maybe that we're supposed to forgive our enemies and even die for them would seem to be an absurd, that is an absurd thing. That for them would be a strong implausibility point. Realizing the cultural relativity of these implausibility points may not completely eliminate their power for us, but they still present a, a fairly devastating critique of them, I think. After all, what makes my Western modern implausibility point any more weighty than its opposite from another culture, if I'm being consistent? But nonetheless, we have these points. We have these areas when we think through our faith and we interact with those around us, whether we're Christians or non-Christians, really, these points where Christianity seems harder to believe, where there's part of it that we struggle with in particularly, where it contradicts what we would tend to believe at a gut level, even as we try um, to believe what the scriptures tell us. If you're a non-Christian, then these implausibility points function like neon lights at the door of the Christian faith. And so, even if you feel drawn to Christianity, even if it seems to explain the world around you and explain your own heart, you find these implausibilities when you come to the door and it keeps you from entering in. They keep you standing at the door, not sure what to do next. If you're a Christian, then these implausibility points are more of a nagging voice in the back of your head most of the time. They bother you. You may try to ignore them, but even when you do, you know that they're still there, whether you think about them or not. And they sow seeds of doubt. And whether you're, you're a Christian or a non-Christian, these implausibility points encourage doubt in us about the claims of Christianity, which finally leads us to acknowledge that we truly feel that we need something more, 
to believe or to do a better job of believing that Christianity is true. We need a greater assurance, a greater proof than we feel like we have right now. The thinking might go something like this. One might think everybody knows that the universe is chaotic, that it's a place that's ruled by time and chance and accidents. And if I'm going to believe in Christianity, if I'm going to believe that there is a loving God who orders all of that and created it, then I need him to actually prove that he is who he said he is, that he does these things. Only then, only if I have some more, ev- some more evidence than that, can I let go of what everybody knows and believe instead that all things come from God. Or it could be everybody knows that a loving person, human or God, would not prescribe who a person is to them, what they can do with their body, who they can love sexually. If I'm going to believe in a God like that, he needs to do much more to prove first that he's real and then that he's loving. If you're a Christian, then the feeling might have a different tone than that, but it's essentially over the same issues. It might feel more like, well, I believe the Bible, I believe in Christ, but Everybody knows that a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. I wish God would give me just a bit more evidence, just a bit more of himself to assure me that the Bible is who he says he is. It would help me to believe in this area where I struggle. So our implausibility points lead us to ask God for more proof, for more evidence, for more of an encounter with him to help us get over the hump of our doubts. And I think we all struggle with this in one way or another. Flannery O'Connor is one of my favorite authors. She was a Roman Catholic writer who lived in Georgia and wrote mostly in the 1950s. Uh, O'Connor's writing, if you're familiar with it or if you're not, it's dark. It's sometimes very dark um, and often very jolting. Um, it throws you off. It's, it's, it's not for everyone, probably. But often what O'Connor's intent is in writing like that and writing the things that she does is to wake up those around her to the reality of human depravity and brokenness and to point them towards their deep need for grace. One of her most well-known works is a short story called A Good Man is Hard to Find. In it, a group of, of six is driving through Georgia on their way out to vacation. One of them, the main character that the story focuses on, uh, is an elderly lady. And through an odd series of events... The car veers off the road, ends up down a hill, out of sight of the road, and in the middle of nowhere in rural Georgia. And as the travelers get out of the car to see what happened, to see what the damage is, they find out that they're not alone. Within sight of them, there's another group, a group of three men, and they quickly see that they're armed. The travelers next recognize one of those three men as a man who calls himself the misfit, a bandit and a murderer who had escaped from federal prison just a few days earlier. They had read about it in the paper. And what follows for the rest of the story is a fairly tense and distressing series of events. The misfit is friendly and polite to them. He politely informs them that he really wished that they hadn't recognized him. He engages in conversation with the elderly woman, while at the same time asking for two of the travelers to go with one of his associates off into the woods, explaining to them that he'd like to ask them a few questions there. The misfit and the woman continue to talk, and she pleads with him. She tells him that she knows that deep down he's a good man, and he'd never harm an old lady. Then they hear two pops off in the woods where the group had gone, and the misfit's associate comes out of the woods and starts walking again towards them alone. The misfit is casual and nonchalant, continues to talk with the elderly woman. He then asks the other three travelers to go with his associate once again into the woods, and not knowing what else to do, they comply. 
Now, the elderly woman and the misfit are the only ones left at this point, and she's increasingly panicked. And she begins to repeat Jesus, Jesus, over and over again. And she means it to be a prayer, but O'Connor mentions that it sounds more like a curse. And the misfit looks at her thoughtfully while she's doing this, and he says, Yes, Jesus thrown everything off balance. And again, after he says that, they hear three pops, this time off in the woods, and the misfit's associate again comes out alone. Then the misfit looks at the old, old lady once more, and this is what he says. He says, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, the misfit continued, and he shouldn't have done it. He'd thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you have left the best you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness, he said, and his voice had become almost a snarl. Maybe he didn't raise the dead, the old lady mumbled, not knowing what she was saying and feeling so dizzy that she sank down in the ditch with her legs twisted under her. I wasn't there, so I can't say he didn't, the misfit continued. I wish that had been there, he said, hitting the ground with his fist. It ain't right I wasn't there, because if I had been there, there, there I would have known. Listen, lady, he said in a high voice, if I had been there, I would have known, and I wouldn't be like I am now. And with that outburst, he does the same to the old woman as had been done to her companions. And the story ends. Like I said, she's a fairly dark writer. <laughs> now, in a, in a good man is hard to find, Flannery O'Connor, she's giving us a stark and extreme picture, obviously. But it's a picture of the same thing that you and I struggle with. It's in some ways a clearer picture of what is at stake in our struggle. The misfit realizes that if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, then there's no hope. If there's no hope, then it doesn't matter what he does because you can't change the outcome of life. Life is hopeless. But the misfit doesn't know whether or not Jesus is who he says he was. Jesus claimed to raise the dead. And the misfit realizes if he did, then he should be followed. But that's where the implausibility point comes, because everybody knows that the dead can't be raised. And the misfit stops, and he feels the pressure of that implausibility point, and it keeps him from following. It keeps him from entering the faith. He feels like he needs more. If he'd seen it, he says, then he'd be able to follow Jesus. But he hasn't seen it, and so he won't follow. He knows everything depends on the answer to this question, but he can't accept Christ's claims. It's too much for him. He feels that he needs to have a real, actual encounter with Jesus in order to believe. This situation, the situation of the misfit in Flannery O'Connor's story, the situation that we find ourselves, that we struggle uh, with implausibility points, where we find ourselves beginning to suspect or to feel or even to demand that we need something more if we're going to either begin to or continue to Trust in Christ. This is the situation that Luke's writing about in our text. This is the situation that he's dealing with. And we see it in two different ways as we examine the passage. Two different levels, really. The first is that we see it in the event itself. We see it with the two disciples that are on the road. As we encounter these two disciples on the road, we see that doubt seems to have won the day for them. These disciples are done, essentially. They're out of there. It's been three days since the crucifixion, and while many of Jesus' followers remain in Jerusalem and mourn, these two are leaving town. They've had enough. They're gone. And they, they say essentially as much. While they acknowledge that Jesus was a prophet when they're talking, their hope in him seems to be shattered at this point. In verse 21, they say, We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Other translations put it as, We were hoping. But... 
Either way, we had hoped, we were hoping. They don't say we hope, we are hoping. They put it in the past tense. In other words, it's not their hope anymore. Why not? Why isn't it their hope anymore? Well, because Jesus had been crucified and had died. And in first century Judaism, everybody knows that messiahs don't die at the hands of their enemies. And especially not on a cross. There were a variety of ideas that were circulating about what the Messiah would be like, about what he would do when he came in the first century. There were a number of different opinions that different groups had on this point uh, in the first century. But one of the things that everybody would agree on is that the Messiah does not die in the process, and especially not at the hands of Israel's oppressors. And the centrality of that point is right there in the text. It's there in verse 26, where Jesus acknowledges that the thing he needs to explain to them is his death. This is the thing that's getting in their way of believing. The two disciples had come up against an implausibility point. Everybody knows that messiahs don't die on a cross. And Jesus had died on a cross. So he must not be the messiah. And so these two disciples are leaving town. Moreover, this implausibility point was so strong for the two disciples that rumors of the resurrection were not even enough to manage it. If you take a look at verses 22 through 24, they mention that they've heard directly from eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses who they probably knew personally about the empty tomb and about the appearance of angels. But that's not enough for them. The doubt from this implausibility point is too great. And so the first thing we see in this text is the power of of doubt for the two disciples. But secondly, we also see how doubt plays in to this text as we consider how Luke is using this story to communicate with his original audience. This is the longest story in Luke's gospel about the resurrected Christ. It takes up almost half of his entire portion on the resurrection. Luke draws our attention to this particular event in the life of the resurrected Lord, an event that none of the other gospels talk about. Why does he do that? Why does Luke choose to include this story, to focus on it, while leaving out other stories? Well, Luke's original audience was dealing with the same issue. Surrounded by non-Christians all around them, Luke's audience struggled with doubt. They were being called on as Christians to affirm a number of faith claims that everyone around them knew were ridiculous. This is part of why Luke is writing his gospel. He says it right in the first chapter. He's writing that they might have certainty, that they might have more confidence regarding what they've been taught. Luke's audience is feeling the pressure of all the implausibility points around them. And they hear the Christian gospel preached among them. And I imagine that they wish that they too could see the risen Lord. Like the misfit, if only they could see it for themselves, then they could surely believe better. Then they could continue better in the faith. Others got to see it. Why didn't they get to see it? And so the two disciples on the road, the original readers of Luke's gospel, the Christians and non-Christians today, and even the character of the misfit, we all struggle with this problem. The Christian faith seems to knock up against those things that everybody knows. And in response, we know that we need a real encounter with the risen Lord in order to help our unbelief. We struggle with doubts, and we need a real encounter with Christ to assuage them. And in this text, Luke's answer to that situation, Luke's answer to that problem, is that Christ has in fact provided that encounter for us. Christ has really and truly drawn close to us. Christ has made himself available to us in a way that is more than sufficient to assuage our doubts. And he has done that, really and truly done that, in a way that none of us were expecting. He has done that in his word and at his table. Take a look at the text with me again. Verses 22 through 24. 
The two disciples say to Jesus, Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. The implication, I think, of verse 24 seems to be that they're saying if they had just seen the risen Lord, then they would believe. The irony of this text is that they're saying that while they're looking at him, while they're looking at the risen Lord, they're saying that's the thing that they would need in order to believe. But it isn't enough. Seeing the Lord did not overcome the two disciples' doubts. So what did? What was it that opened their eyes? After their eyes are opened, the disciples identify two things in the text that brought them to see that Jesus was risen. The first is in verse 32. They say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And the second is in verse 35, where they summarize what happened to them by saying that Christ was known to them in the breaking of bread, in the word and in the breaking of bread, in the scriptures and in the table. There's a sense in which Jesus is telling the disciples and in which Luke is telling his readers that while we rightly know that we need a real encounter with the risen Lord, we misunderstand how we need to encounter him. It is not the miraculous or the astounding appearance of Christ that we really need. In fact, that kind of encounter proved to be of little or no benefit to the two disciples. Their eyes did not perceive Christ aright when he was standing before them. Even with Christ physically present to them, it was the word and it was the bread where he was truly made known to them, where they truly encountered him. In the scriptures, the same scriptures which they had heard again and again throughout their lives that were so familiar, that were so routine. In the bread that was so ordinary and so mundane. It's in these things that Christ was revealed to them. Now, I think if we're honest, we have a tough time with this. Uh, we might try to, or at least I would maybe try to, at first, to, to sound spiritual or be spiritual and say, yes, the word and the table, that's where we encounter Christ. And I would, I would nod my head. But there would be part of me, there is part of me sometimes, in the back of my head that's, that's not quite content with that, that says, oh, come on. You're telling me that this book and some bread and wine served from that table will give me more confidence over my doubts than a real-life encounter with the risen Lord. Give me a break. Yeah, you want to talk about implausibility points. There's your implausibility point right there. A friend of mine named John um, has a pretty great story from his childhood. When John was three or four, it somehow came out to his parents that he believed that the thing that made you grow physically as you got older was birthday cake. (laughs) That it was eating the birthday cake that was for you every year that caused you to grow in the year ahead. I mean, it kind of makes sense if you think about it. Every year you have this magical birthday cake that's just, you know, that's for you in particular, that's brought to you, and every year you grow more and more. It makes sense. Uh, if you look at it, it must be connected. And I imagine that if John's parents had tried to convince him that it wasn't that amazing and magical birthday cake that caused him to grow each year, but then instead it was the everyday, ordinary, Boring, regular food, eaten one day at a time, over and over again, much of which he didn't really like, that helped him to grow bit by bit. Well, I imagine that four-year-old John would have been a bit skeptical about that. 
And what if, and I don't think this ever happened to him, which is nice, but what if one year John couldn't have cake for his birthday? What if for some reason at his birthday there was no cake? How would that affect John? I imagine that three or four-year-old John would expect not to grow in the year ahead. He would be sad and upset. He would think it hopeless to overcome his current height and size. But even if he believed that, even if he really believed that in his gut, if he really believed what he needed was birthday cake, if he anyway, despite that, continued to follow his parents' instructions and ate his regular food every day, no matter how doubtful he felt about it, we all know that he would still grow that year. What Luke in this text, and more importantly what Jesus in this event is telling us, is that we're a bit like four-year-old John. We think we need magical birthday cake to overcome our doubts, but we really need everyday meat and potatoes and vegetables. We think we need a miraculous encounter with Christ, but what we really need is to encounter him in his word and in the table. In fact, more than that, it's not the miraculous event that will ultimately calm our doubts, but only the the regular encounters with Christ through his word and table. And when we hear that, we tend to respond a lot like four-year-old John might. We're quite a bit skeptical. Maybe it's okay that that's how we feel, because if we continue anyway in faith to follow our Heavenly Father's instructions, and week after week come to the Word and come to the table, we will grow. We will gain assurance over our doubts. Whether we believe it in our gut that that's how it's going to work or not, it will still happen. And the reality is that this is a lot more like our other relationships than we tend to think. This might sound strange that we go to these daily, regular things, and this is how we encounter Christ. But in a sense, God is working much like we work in our other relationships in order to draw close to people. If you think of your relationship with your spouse, if you have one, or with your relationship to a parent, your relationship to your closest friend, if you have that in mind and you think about it, how do you know that that person loves you? I mean, how do you really know? If you were, for some reason, tempted to doubt their love for you, what would you think about in order to assure yourself that they do, in fact, love you? Some relationships have an intense moment where love is really put on display, where, for, because of some extreme circumstances, someone puts his own life on the line for a spouse or a child or a friend, where someone makes an extraordinary act of, of sacrifice, Uh, for the other person, and so proves their love in that moment for the other person. But for most of us, our relationships will never have that sort of life or death moment, that opportunity for some sort of dramatic display like that. And even if it did, we would wonder, would that give us assurance of the other person's love 10, 20, or 50 years down the line? For most marriages, to take one example, the proof of one's love does not come from one grand gesture but from millions of little ones. It's found in the interactions of thousands of shared meals, thousands of I love you's, thousands of embraces, and thousands of physical unions. It's found in the daily sacrifices of working hard, either at a job or in the home, to care for the other person. It's found in the hundreds or thousands of gestures of service, the meals prepared for the other person, the coffee fetched for the other person, giving the good spot on the couch to the other person, Could a marriage, or really could any relationship, survive long without these small and mundane things? If we're ever tempted to doubt the love of someone else, that someone else has for us, it's usually not the grand things that we look to to find our assurance. It's the small ones. It's the mundane ones. It's the ones that have happened over and over again through ordinary and mundane means. 
And it's in these that we truly encounter the other person and that we truly see their love for us. This is where our doubts about their love are set aside. And so it is with our relationship with Christ. It is in our ordinary, regular encounters with him, in his word and at his table, that our doubts are most dealt with. Now, of course, there are times we need to work through our doubts directly, where we need to ask difficult questions, where we need to think through difficult things, and conversations like that are necessary in any healthy relationship. But when it comes to our implausibility points, those areas where we struggle, the issue is often different than that. It's often not confusion or that we need more information, but these are points where we struggle to stand against what everyone else knows, the direction that everyone else pushes us, and that we ourselves feel pulled. The areas where we feel we need more assurance that Christ is who he said he is. And for that, to know who Christ really is, we need to relate to him through the word and at the table. For the Christian, this means that we need to bring ourselves to the church every Sabbath to encounter Christ in his word and at his table. We need to sit under the preaching of his word, and we know that in it, whether we feel it or not, we're getting more than just intellectual information. We're encountering Christ. As a husband's affectionate words to his wife are more than just the transmission of information, so hearing Christ's word preached is more than just an informative lecture. It's an encounter with the risen Lord. And as we come to the table, it's more than an act of simply remembering what's taken place, more than simply eating a small piece of bread and drinking a small cup of wine. At this table, we encounter Christ in a mysterious way, in a way that that we're unable to fully comprehend. Christ serves as both the host of this meal and the thing that we feed on. Like four-year-old John, whether we feel it or not, this meal makes us grow. For non-Christians... This means that you need to approach Christ much like you would another person who you're trying to figure out. You should do your research, of course. You should wrestle with the issues that you struggle with. But at the end of the day, if you want to know what someone is like, you need to be in their presence. And Christ had said that this is where he is present, in his word and at his table. So come and come often. Hear how Christ talks to his bride. And you're invited to listen in on the conversation. Even more than that, you're urged to hear it as his word to you as well. Watch as Christ's people participate in his his supper and consider the God who would die to save and to nourish his people. You need to see it with your own eyes to truly and honestly wrestle with your doubts. So come here and come see it. The Road to Emmaus is a strange story, uh, if we're honest, if we think about it. It's an odd story. It's a miraculous story, and not only for those two disciples that day on the road, but for all Christians, for all of us here today. It tells us that Christ is in our midst, that he's truly present among us, whether we see him right away or not. Christ is here in our midst, in his word, and at his table. So let's draw close to him and bring all of ourselves, our praises to proclaim his lordship, our sins to hear his pardon, our thanks for all of his blessings, and our doubts to receive his assurance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ's presence among us. We thank you for his presence in the word and in the supper. We pray that you would help our unbelief. Lord, we do believe, we do come to you, help our unbelief and help us to trust your promises that you're present in these places, Lord. Help us to honestly bring our doubts to you in worship, to bring them at the foot of your word, to bring them to the table. 
and to receive assurance, Christ, that you are who you say you are, that you are risen, that you are king. We pray this in your name. Amen.